I mentioned last week that we'd briefly look at Joel 2 this morning. So we're going to do that real quick before we get started in Revelation. Our main text is going to be Revelation 8, but I would invite you to open up to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And I promise this will only take a second. We see... Peter actually quotes this passage from Joel in Acts 2, 14 through 21. So once you get to Joel, go ahead and flip to Acts 2, and we'll turn there and see if we can pick this apart real quick. So I'll read Acts 2, verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So this is transpiring on the day of Pentecost, when all the people witnessed this great display of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues. And... Peter goes on to say, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, now quoting that passage from chapter 2 of Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Therefore, the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is pointing to that day that he was speaking in, Pentecost, as a fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel. But you'll notice that there are certain pieces of that prophecy that he quotes that were not fulfilled at Pentecost. So what do we do with that? Well, there is a partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy at Pentecost, but its true fulfillment and its fulfillment in its entirety will be during the tribulation. The great soul harvest on the day of Pentecost was like that which will come during the tribulation. These certain aspects were not seen at Pentecost. Wonders in heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun being turned into darkness and the moon turning into blood. We did not see those in the day of Pentecost, but they will be seen during the second installment, if you will, of Pentecost that will come during the tribulation. Okay, so that's how that whole prophecy fits into what we're talking about. Um, Just wanted to cover that because I told you I would last week. Let's move to Revelation 8 now. We'll open up there and we'll get started. We'll see a scene in heaven to open the chapter. And then the first four of the seven trumpet judgments will unfold before we come to chapter 9. So, Open up to Revelation 8 with me. I'm going to read through it. I'll try to keep it engaging for you. But we're going to read through this whole chapter, get an idea of what we'll be looking at. 
verse one, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now let's come back up to verse 1 in chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, remember at this point in verse 1, we're still in the seal judgments. The trumpets have not started being sounded yet, but this seventh seal brings about the seven trumpets. So I used the analogy several weeks ago of a firework. If you're watching a firework show, you can see one shoot up in the air. It bursts into several pieces. And then one of those pieces bursts into several more pieces. And that's kind of the illustration that we have throughout these judgments. Your seals, trumpets, and the bowl judgments. Each one breaks into the next. So this seventh seal... At its opening, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And these events are going to lead up and eventually culminate in the trumpet judgments. And I want you to notice, too, that it was only after, it says he, referring to Christ, when he opened the seventh seal that the trumpet judgments could begin. There's a linear fashion to this sequence of events. They couldn't begin during the sixth seal or the fifth seal. There's a sequence being carefully followed. So from the seventh seal come the trumpets, 
and from the seventh trumpet come the bulls. Now it says there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And up to this point, these judgments that we've seen have been noisy. There hasn't been silence. And they'll continue to be noisy after this. But there's a brief interlude, if you will. If you look at the seal judgments, numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4, the text says that a living creature with a voice like thunder says to John, come and see. So there's this thundering voice, noisy. Seal number five, the martyred believers cry out with a loud voice. It's noisy. Seal number six, there was a great earthquake and people actually started talking to rocks. And you can go back and see what I'm talking about. Noise. But with seal number seven, it seems to be a somber and solemn moment in heaven. There's silence for about half an hour. If you remember back, there was this great multitude gathered around the throne. We saw that in chapter 7. All the angels were gathered around the throne. Who knows how many? Myriads and myriads of angels. The whole congregation of believers was before the throne, along with those four living creatures. Silence. Among everything, silent. And we need to realize how significant it is for heaven to be silent. Revelation 4.8 told us that the four living creatures around the throne, quote, do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The living creatures don't ever stop saying that until this point. And it could be that since creation, this is the first time that heaven has been silent. Those four living creatures saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Heaven is filled with praises to the Lord. This silence is more significant than many noises. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, these are seven distinct angels who have the job or purpose of standing before God in his presence. These are seven specific angels. One of them could possibly be the angel Gabriel that we see in scripture. If you look at Luke 1, 19, this verse records Gabriel's words to Zacharias, that is the father of John the Baptist, as Gabriel is announcing John the Baptist's birth. Zacharias is questioning Gabriel, saying, how do I know that you're legit? How do I know that this is real, what's happening? Gabriel responds with these words, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. So Gabriel himself says 
that he stands in the presence of God. And this might describe the same function of these seven angels described in our text this morning, and it may not. So we're not drawing any hard and fast conclusions there, but it is a possibility. As for the identity of the other six angels, we have no clue, but they are seven distinct angels, and we know that because of the use of the definite article, the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. So I think that this is still silent. I think this continues this moment of silence for about 30 minutes. And so they were silently given seven trumpets, one to each of these seven angels. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. Then another angel. Some will try to read this other angel to be referring to Jesus. And that's really not an accurate reading of what John is trying to say here. There are two distinct words in the Greek language that are both translated as another in English. These are allos and heteros. And allos expresses a numerical difference. It's another of the same sort or the same kind. Heteros expresses a qualitative difference. It's another, but of a different kind. And we see these two words used throughout scripture. And it's an interesting study to go back and look at the different uses of these words. Um, But for example, our women's ministry is having another Christmas tea this weekend. Now, if I were speaking Greek, I would have used the word allos. It's another instance of the same type of event that we've had in the past. It's another of the same sort. Jesus here would have been of a different kind than the angels that John was just talking about. That word would have been heteros, if that's what he meant. The word used in our text, then another angel, is allos. It's another angel of the same sort as before. So it is not Jesus who is the creator of the angels. It is another angel of the same kind. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. So this eighth angel, in effect, comes and stands at the altar. It says he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. For centuries, Christians have been praying that God would bring about justice, even vengeance, to those who blaspheme his name, reject his son, and abuse his people. And we have a picture painted of those prayers being safeguarded in heaven here. Those prayers could not be immediately answered by God, but they've been safeguarded in heaven for this moment. Do you remember the response that was given to the martyrs in chapter 6, verse 10? 
those martyrs cried out to God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then verse 11, the very next verse, says that they were given white robes, and it was said to them that they should rest just a little while longer. Just hang on one second, guys, because it's coming, but not yet. And up until this event that John is witnessing, those prayers of vengeance and justice could not be answered. But now these prayers are being gathered together to be offered on the golden altar. And there's nothing in the text that would make us think this is a different golden altar than the martyrs were crying out from under, which strengthens this point of view. Probably the same golden altar that we saw in chapter 7 that the martyrs cried out from under. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And I don't think I really have to remind you, but I'll mention it just to strengthen this point. In chapter 6, we talked about incense being closely tied to prayer you know, in its symbolism. Here in verse 4, we see a very obvious relationship between them. The two, the incense and the prayers of the saints, are very closely linked. It's almost as if they're traveling together. How closely together, I'm not sure. They're traveling together up to God, and he is receiving the smell of that incense and the prayers of the saints. And in Psalm 141.2, prayer is again tied with incense. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And if you're interested, there's a whole study that you can do on the symbolism of the tabernacle in in Exodus. Uh, God lays out those instructions to Moses, and every little detail of that structure relates in some way or another to Christ. It's the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So everything that we see here was started way back in Scripture, in other places. Nothing is started in Revelation, but many things are wrapped up. In fact, everything is wrapped up. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And so by this point, it's very obvious that this moment of silence has wrapped up and there are some loud noises. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. The fact that this censer is filled with fire from the prayers and thrown to the earth indicates that these prayers are about to be answered by God. He's getting ready to do something about this. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. 
these are the results of that scene in heaven, and they're now being felt on earth. The angel threw the fire from the censer to the earth, and it resulted in noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This shaking basically functions as a warning for the wrath that will follow. And I want you to be sensitive to the fact that what happened in heaven affected earth very real and very tangibly. Now, this is just for consideration. I don't know how closely things are connected, but it seems like actions and scenes in heaven actually have a very physical consequence on earth. That's, that's interesting. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So they're getting ready. They know that these trumpets are about to be blown. These bits of wrath are about to be meted out. And verse 7 says, the first angel sounded. So immediately they take effect. Now as we look at these first four trumpets this morning, four of the seven, they seem to all deal with the environment. They're all dealing with natural phenomena, but ramped up to a level that makes it functionally supernatural. And we'll see that as we move along. In the first trumpet, trees and grass are touched. In the second trumpet, the sea and sea creatures, along with ships, are touched. In the third, the waters of the world are touched. And in the fourth, the celestial bodies are touched. And we'll read over and over that these judgments affected one-third of each of their domains, so to speak. A third of the trees and grass, a third of the sea, a third of the sea creatures, a third of the ships, a third of the rivers, a third of the sun, moon, and stars, and a third of the day and night. So some commentators, scholars, will call these the judgments of thirds. So I want you to be aware of that as you read more about it this week, right? The judgments of thirds. And many commentators, I believe with good reason, will connect the first three trumpets along with the fifth and sixth trumpets to the plagues of Egypt during the Exodus. So I've got a graphic for you, and we'll leave it up there for a little bit just to get the information. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. So in this little graphic I put together, you can see the trumpet as it relates to the plague and where to find the plague in Exodus. So in the seventh plague, some will see some similarity to the first trumpet because it rained hail and fire on Egypt. And you can write these references down. You can track them down yourself and see what you think about it. So hail mixed with fire rained down on the earth. And this first trumpet bears similarities to the seventh plague, of course, in that God caused a great hail to fall on Egypt. 
Our text says, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, there's a slight difference between the plagues of Egypt and this trumpet. In Egypt, the whole territory of Egypt, save for Goshen, was affected by this hail. But with this judgment and revelation, it only destroys one-third of the planet's vegetation. It's not entirely wiping it out. And I want to point out that this word for grass, you see, and all green grass was burned up, it doesn't just mean like the grass in your backyard. This is a broader term that encompasses vegetation, herbage. It can encompass, you know, wheat, barley, millet, all of these different crops, a third of them being destroyed with fire. And I bet it's easier for you to picture this fire now because of what we just experienced in Texas with the wildfires this year. You know, they were fairly widespread across the state, and the smoke that was produced by those fires was carried pretty much everywhere. I think everyone was affected in some way or form by these fires. And the damage that they caused farmers and ranchers, and not to mention other types of people, it was deep. They damaged a lot. Along with their pastures being burned up, livestock in their fields suffered, and some lost their lives to the fires. But... As bad as those fires were, this judgment will be far worse. And just to give you an idea of the scale we're talking about here, the Texas wildfires in 2022 affected about 54,463 acres across the state. This works out to about 0.032% of the total area of the state of Texas. 0.032%. If those fires can cause such damage by only taking that much of the area of Texas, imagine cranking that percentage up to 33%, a third. And since we're talking about the total area, we'll, we'll back that percentage down a little bit. There's some area in Texas that's not covered with grass or herbage. So we'll bump that percentage down to 20% of the total surface of Texas being burnt up. That's 625 times the extent of the wildfires that we saw this year. That is very, very far-reaching and very devastating. And the fires of this time period won't be confined to Texas, obviously, but they'll be widespread worldwide. They'll be burning up a third of the trees and a third of the green grass. And the text specifies green grass, chloros. We already talked about the word chloros. It's green, a pale green color, the green grass. And that's specified. And I believe that that is to make sure that we understand these fires are not just burning up dead brush, you know, things that we might want gone, like a controlled burn, 
This is taking out everything in its path. We know that the moisture content, the higher it is in a plant, the harder it is to catch on fire. And the fact that the text specifies the green grass is taken out, it means that this fire is strong and possibly even something supernatural going on with this fire. Now, that's the first angel. That's the first trumpet. But then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, I, I do want to make something clear about this phrase, something like a great mountain burning with fire. John uses a simile. It's a figure of speech to describe what he witnesses. He said that he saw something that appeared like a burning mountain thrown into the sea. He doesn't say that an actual burning mountain was ripped up and thrown back into the sea, but it was something that appeared to him like a large mass of land, like a mountain. And this is actually a pretty good description of what we would call an asteroid, a large lump of land, of mass, that is being burnt up as it enters the atmosphere. And he says it was thrown into the sea. So apparently this asteroid is going to land in the sea. Now, though he uses a figure of speech to convey what he's seeing, that is not licensed to take this symbolically. He actually witnessed this event occurring, and he actually witnessed something falling down and hitting the sea. So we can't just chalk this up to, oh, well, that's symbolic for da-da-da-da-da. There's actual, literal, physical things happening here. Was thrown into the sea. This asteroid lands in the sea, and it has some kind of reaction with the water because it says that a third of the sea became blood. I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but I have no doubt that it will. He could be talking about the Mediterranean Sea here. And this is one viewpoint. Some think this is the case because it was the center of trade and economic sphere of John's day. The Mediterranean Sea, which he was close to. Uh, there obviously would have been a lot of ships on the sea at that time. But others take this to mean just the oceans in general, the seas of the world. And I find it easier to gather the meaning of oceans from a plain reading of the text. So that's what I tend to go with here. The oceans, a third of the oceans became blood. Now, could you imagine a third of all ocean-dwelling creatures dying, all very close together in time? There's been big fish kills before, and we've seen the effects that that can have on ecosystems. 
and on the smell of the surrounding area. And this fish kill and everything else kill will be much more widespread. A third of the fish, sharks, whales, dolphins, crustaceans, shrimp, zooplankton, everything killed. And here's some extra information for you. No extra charge. It's estimated that anywhere from 50 to 80% of our oxygen actually comes from the plankton in the ocean. Everybody's worried about chopping down the rainforest and you know maybe we shouldn't do that. But 50 to 80% it's estimated that our oxygen comes from zooplankton. A third of those will be killed. The atmosphere will actually go down in oxygen content. And the fires burned up a third of the trees. And I just have a feeling, mostly from other places in Revelation, that these things will be happening quickly, closely together. So I think that these will compound on one another as we move through these judgments. So the combination of a third of the trees being gone, burned up, and a third of the zooplankton being killed in the oceans, that's going to knock the oxygen content of our atmosphere down quite a bit. So if you can imagine having to take deeper breaths to get the same amount of oxygen into your lungs, but the air smells of putrefying fish. Now, this is not a happy sight. This is not a fun place to be. You're walking around lower oxygen. It smells bad. There's smog in the air. And we'll get back to that. Let's move on to the third trumpet. Verse 10 says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Now, again, I'll reiterate that this word translated as star is aster. And this word encompasses more than what we would call a star. This encompasses all celestial bodies, including asteroids, meteorites, comets, those sort of things. So we see here another asteroid from heaven burning like a torch. Of course, that's what they look like as they enter the Earth's atmosphere. They start to burn up. And the vast, vast majority of asteroids that enter the Earth's atmosphere actually burn up before they make landfall. And you see the shooting stars. That's an example of this occurring. This one is not going to burn up completely. It says that it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. That last one fell on the ocean, and this one falls on the fresh water, the drinking water. And we'll see the effects of that. But it's been estimated, and I'll, I'd even say calculated, that an asteroid falling in the ocean 
of at least a kilometer in diameter would be so devastating that it would create tidal waves on all coasts connected up to 200 feet tall, tidal waves. So along with all the devastation that follows that first asteroid, there's going to be flooding, tsunamis, that sort of stuff. Here, Springs is talking about the subterranean water supplies. It says that it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. That word springs can be translated as fountains or wells, I'm talking about underwater freshwater supplies. So this language seems to capture the entire freshwater supply. So a third of that is going to be made bitter. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Wormwood is the name of this asteroid or star. And remember, Psalm 147.4 tells us that God counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that this star is named. He knows the name of this asteroid, and he uses this specific celestial body for this specific special purpose. He picks this one out of the billions of asteroids. And he says, you go here. You are going to accomplish my purpose in this time. Wormwood means bitterness or bitter. And it's also the name of an herb that's poisonous. And apparently this asteroid poisons, in effect, a third of the world's freshwater supply. And it says that many men die from drinking that affected water. These two instances in verse 11 of Revelation 8 are the only two instances that the word wormwood is used in the New Testament. There are a few translations into the word wormwood from the Old Testament. So you'll see in Deuteronomy 29, 18, Amos 5, 7, and Proverbs 5, 3 through 5. All of those examples are using this word wormwood to mean bitter or poisonous. A third of the waters became wormwood, bitter and poisoned, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Of course, the moon will be affected if the sun is affected, 
because the moon just reflects the light from the sun. And at this point in the tribulation, men are claiming to love darkness, you know, spiritually, metaphorically, and probably physically. We love darkness. Is God giving them the darkness that they seem to think that they want? He's saying, okay, here is the darkness that you chase after constantly. Now, what exactly is going on here? I don't really know. Don't know how God is going to bring about this. But here are a few possibilities. Is the sky so filled with the soot and the smog from the fires that only two-thirds of the sun's light can get through to earth? Maybe so. Sun darkened by a third. Does God dim the sun so that it doesn't shine as brightly on the earth you know, through some other means? It's possible. Is this saying that the time light shines on the earth in the span of a day was reduced by a third? Maybe. I'm not sure. But however it works out, we do see that this is temporary because in Revelation 16, 8, God strengthens the sun so that it scorches men. So we see this dimming of the sun right now. Later on in chapter 16, we'll see the sun being strengthened and it will scorch men. The dimming of the sun has a specific purpose in this judgment. And the strengthening of the sun will serve his purpose during the bowl judgments. There's a purpose in everything. Verse 13. You know what? Before we move on, in chapter 11, you'll see the two men who are called the two witnesses. And it says that they have power over all different types of plagues. And they will be ministering, they will be carrying out their duties during the time that these trumpet judgments are taking place. We can line that up chronologically. Now, I will present to you the view that God actually uses those two witnesses outside Jerusalem to, in effect, bring about these trumpet judgments. The text says that they have control over many different types of plagues, some of which are specifically listed in chapter 11 and here as the trumpets. So I, I present to you that possibility. Look into it and see if you think that it, it could be. Now, verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Some translations, and you may have one, will say, I heard an eagle flying. And this isn't a difference in translation, but it's a difference in manuscripts and which manuscripts were used. 
Um, not a huge deal, but the majority of manuscripts do read angel. And that's why the King James and the New King James are translated as angel instead of eagle. It could be that John saw one of those living creatures that he described, and one of which he had previously described as looking like a flying eagle. He could be referring to seeing that creature and described it in the same way, like a flying eagle. Maybe that's what he's seeing. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a regular old angel. But whatever it is, the message that he's bringing is not one that I want to hear. The message he's bringing is one of doom, impending judgment, wrath. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait, because there's more coming. And we've seen this phrase, inhabitants of the earth, a couple of other times so far. And it's speaking of those on earth who make themselves comfortable dwelling here. We, as Christians, as believers in Christ, are called as pilgrims on the earth. We're sojourners just passing through. We understand that this is not our home. But these inhabitants of the earth have settled down. They've made this their place of dwelling. These inhabitants of the earth enjoy this life with all of its temporal pleasures. That's all that they have to look forward to. because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and the three angels who are about to sound. These last three trumpet judgments that we'll get to on down the line are known as the three woes of Revelation or of the end times. And they're the most intense of the trumpet judgments. And they're saved for the end. Now, we went through this chapter and we saw all of these thirds. A third of the seas, sea creatures, ships destroyed, a third of the vegetation, trees, everything else. What's the significance of God just taking a third of everything? He could just as easily wipe it all out and be done. He could have just as easily not ever created us at all. He could have been done with us after Adam and Eve sinned. Why didn't he just wipe out all of the vegetation? Why didn't he just wipe everyone out? What's keeping him from doing that? It's love. He is a loving God, though he is also just. And his justice must not outweigh his love. And his love must not outweigh his justice. There's balance. It's a perfect balance. And we see, I'll say we saw, coming through those seal judgments. They started off where men could say, hey, that's just war. That's just famine. Those are natural. We've seen those for years and years. Of course, it's going to be ramped up. 
but they could rationalize those things. They could rationalize the pestilence, the disease. You know, yeah, we've seen that before. You know, that's nothing special. They're stuck in their ways. They're not turning to God. The whole purpose of the tribulation is to turn people to God. He's shaking them. He's saying, wake up, guys. Like, this is the end. You have no chance after this. Go ahead, wake up from your sleep, and turn to me. But they're stubborn. He starts out shaking a little bit, moving some things on the earth, the political climate, the environment, starting to shake things around. Then in these trumpet judgments, he steps it up a notch, says, okay, I'm sticking with natural, but putting a little supernatural flavor into it. I'm turning the temperature up just a little more. We'll take a third now. Take a third of your trees, your grass, your water supply. Still, just little tweaks on the knob. He's going up bit by bit. And all throughout this process, there are more and more people coming to him. Finally, getting waken up from their slumber and turning to him. Bit by bit. Now, in his wisdom and in his knowledge, there will come a day when he knows no more will turn to me. And that's when he'll wrap it up. It'll all be over. The fullness of those who are coming to him must come in. Let's just take a third for now. And we'll see in the bowl judgments, it's no longer a third. He's turning the entire water supply to blood. He is wrapping things up very quickly in the bowl judgments. Now, he is still working with men. He's still working with them. And this morning, he's being patient with us. He hasn't ended it yet. We're still here. We're still living in the age before the tribulation, the church age, the age of grace. There is this grace that we are extended this morning. And that grace will not be extended forever. There is a point in time when each of us will no longer get to accept Christ. When your life here ends, you're out of chances. You've made your decision. In the Bible, there are roughly 600 warnings specifically related to eternal punishment. 600 warnings. If I'm driving down the road and I pass sign after sign saying dead end ahead, 600 dead end signs, and I smack right through the end of the road into the creek and roll my car, that's my fault. 
No one else can be blamed for that. I was sufficiently warned by each one of those 600 signs passing by me that the end is just about there. It's my fault if I drive off the end. We are being called today to turn to Christ. And it's in a different way than we see God calling them in the tribulation. And I'm thankful for that. I don't want to have to be called this way. But we have the opportunity to turn to him this morning. And if you already have made that decision to follow Christ, there's always a next step. Sanctification. We should constantly be working to become more Christ-like. And it's only through him that we do that. There's always a next step, something else that can be cleaned up in our lives. And I would encourage you and plead with you to take the next step that's being placed on your heart. And I don't know what it is, and it could be nearly anything. Just have faith that he is working a good work in you. Take a step in that direction, and I think you'll be surprised at how well that works out for you. Let's wrap up our study this morning in a word of prayer.